0: Hey, this is Big Rev. Thanks for tuning in to Masterclass Theology, a weekly podcast where we study books of the Bible a verse at a time and apply it to our lives. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Let's rock. God, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for uh, Hosea chapter 10 and the unique challenge that it presents to us. And I just pray, Lord, that we'll be challenged tonight and that tonight will be. Just some good convicting work upon our own hearts as we study this word that is very convicting upon Israel. And so we just, uh, we just give this time to you, Lord, and we just pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let me send my quick chat to everybody so you have that. There you go. Okay, well, we are in Hosea chapter 10, and... As you see at the top of the page, there just kind of how the progression of the of the book has gone. That started off with God's people are unfaithful. They continue with God basically saying that His people don't know Him, and we're nearing the end of this third section tonight. God's people are not devoted to Him, and the final the final section are God's people are deceitful, and we're going to tease that final theme because tonight. Uh, one of my main points is going to focus on that deceit and deception. And so we have two sections tonight, verses one to eight and nine to 15, uh, destruction and war. So we're in Hosea chapter 10 and let's just start with the first couple of verses under destruction, the false heart. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Pillars. Interesting. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord, or actually, it literally says there in Hebrew, he will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. So, evidently, these altars, and these pillars are not for Israel's god they have a false heart look at how look at how things have unfolded there life is going great and so Israel thinks that the way that, that he has been worshiping is good because he keeps being blessed and so he doubles down and he builds more idol worshiping altars he builds more asherah poles or pillars he doubles down on the Baal worship because life keeps getting better so god sees through that the theme of this first section is destruction yeah he's a luxuriant vine he's fat and happy things are working out nicely the more he increases he builds more altars yeah 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 as he improves he improves his pillars Wow, life is just working out great. Isn't that wonderful? But God just calls Israel out. Your heart is false. And you're going to bear your guilt. What is their guilt? They're idol worshiping. They're claiming allegiance to God and doing otherwise. And then they're not even claiming allegiance to God anymore. They're just doubling down on what seems to work for them. Wow. Huh. They're going to bear their guilt, and God's going to break down those altars. God's not going to have it anymore. That way of doing things is not going to last. There's going to come a point where God's going to say, enough. So that's the false heart. They put all their heart into it. Oh, isn't that great? They were doing their best. They were really really going for it. Isn't that what life's all about? No. How about the second section? Empty oaths, verses three and four. For now they will say, we have no king, for we don't fear the Lord. And a king, what can he do for us? They utter mere words. With empty oaths they make covenants, so judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. They make empty oaths. It's like they're trying to have this relationship with God, but they're not treating God as if he is God. They're treating God as if he's an option, someone to be placated. And yeah, it's just, it's not, it's not how, it's it, it's it's like, okay, we're not even going to say God is king because we can't even say that with a straight face. Because everything else in our life is king. In fact, we're King. And so they have this false heart that tries to play games with God. When life works out well for them, they think that everything is good because life is working out well. And then they just utter these empty oaths. They just, they just use words. So you think some good things are going to spring up out of the ground, because they've been having nothing but good crops. But no, judgment's coming. It's going to be like those weeds when they stop being tended and they tend to take over the yard. Judgment is coming the false heart yeah what can he do for us mick says the emphasis is us not god yeah it's like burger king theology you're way right away at burger king what have you done for me lately you know i've been journeying to the book of exodus in my morning devotions it's like that's the way israel is the first time they're upset they're 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 wishing they could go back to egypt because you know in egypt we at least had food to eat just forget the whips and chains going around you and the fact that you're making bricks without straw. Life wasn't that great. Soon in Egypt, they're going to complain about, you know, they will long for the melons, like the leeks and melons. Like they missed Egypt's produce section or something. Really? That's all you got to care for? Well, what more does God have to do to get your allegiance before you just turn at the first chance to turn? So the false heart, empty oath, trembling for the calf. What? Five and six. The, inhabitant, uh, the inhabitants of Samaria. Samaria was a city in the north. Okay, so it'd be, it'd been, in Jesus' day, became a territory, like where the Samaritans were part of that. But it was, a, it was the capital city of the northern kingdom for a lot, of, a lot of time. So Samaria usually is referring to the north. And all the prophets, when I mean, you hear Samaria, you're thinking of the north. The inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf of, well, they can't call it Bethel. God uses a, a pun here, Beth Aven. So, like a Beth is house or Beth, Beth Aven, house of wickedness. It's like the, what would be the house of the Lord, Bethel. Um, they have this golden calf there. So, God's like not playing around with that. He's like, that's not my house. That's the house you've made for that golden calf. Um, they trembled for the calf. You know what that actually is picturing? So this is in John 3, where Jesus talks about men love darkness. And he uses the word agape, men agape to gar- darkness. So that's what we have here. They're having a, a, a fabulous worship service full of ecstasy, full of trembling. They are in a full emotional commitment to this golden calf. They're trembling before him, like little shivers are going up their legs. They are just, ooh, ah, it's the greatest emotional connection with the deity right there. That's what it's talking about here. They're having this kind of emotional connected worship service, not with their God, not with Yahweh, not with the one who brought them out of Egypt and gave them the law, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. No, with this lifeless hunk of gold. I can imagine God if he had a mouth throwing up in his mouth at this point. Are you serious? Your heart is trembling before this golden calf? Man. Wow. They trembled for the cath of Betaven. It's people mourn for it. Look at that emotional commitment. They're weeping. They're having this great emotional see some of these worship services today. You'll see them with this kind of ecstatic things, and people can't control their emotions and this big weepy mess. Our God is a God of order, not a God of random weepy messes and ecstatic things. No. God is about an orderly worship service where they have this kind of ecstasy kind of thing. No, no. And that's what they're having here with an idol. And so do its idolatrous priests. Oh, they're mourning too. Those who rejoiced over it, over its glory. Oh, it has glory. Boy, what a deity, this thing they're worshiping here. Wow. For it has departed from them. What? Verse 6. The thing itself shall be carried to Assyria as tribute to the great king. Yeah, this tiglath the third—they got to pay that boy because he's going to come and destroy everybody. So they're giving away every last ounce of gold they have to keep that guy away. And that guy's going to come through and wipe everybody out anyway. So here it is, this great, this great golden calf that they're trembling and mourning before. It's going to be sent away. It's going to be sent away. It's done. The thing itself shall be carried to Assyria as tribute to the great king. Ephraim shall be put to shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his idol. There's going to come some point where they realize that this is all a bunch of nonsense. They worship this thing, and this thing couldn't stop it being carried away. And they're going to feel ashamed. Their guilt is going to turn into shame. It's going to take over them. They're going to be at that point where they are going to feel really stupid. We worship this. And this thing didn't even come through, not once. We get a flavor of that in the Gideon story where let Baal contend for himself. And here, here they are knocking down the, the Baal altar or whatnot. And you know, and if Baal was really God, Baal would be able to take care of it. But he doesn't. He can't do anything because really, Baal is not. So you have a false heart, you have empty oaths, trembling for the calf and then facing reality. Samaria's king shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters. You might be able to picture Hosea has this image in his head. The people are being carted off. And they're just being marched off East. They're being taken away to wherever they're going to be taken to. You can't march them off west because marching them off west would be going into the Mediterranean Sea, you see. So you're going to be marching them off. Maybe there's one big long line, and they're curving, and they're just being marched. And he's picturing like a twig just floating on the water, going hither and yon. Just no control. They're being carted off. Their days of control are over at that point. Samaria's king will perish like the twig on the face of the waters, the high place of Avan, wickedness, the sin of Israel shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars, and they shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. You see, they're facing the reality of they chose wrong. Instead of listening to the prophets, calling them back to worship God exclusively. They chose their own selfishness. They're facing the reality that they were on the wrong team. They're facing the reality that the things they prayed to were nothing, had no power. And now they're crispy critters. Those who are still alive are going to be taken away and put God knows where. Like a twig just floating. Done. destruction that's the first section enough is going to be enough and god is calling his shot so what do we learn about worship and self-deception here you see they were self they were deceiving themselves they're worshiping these things and they're saying to themselves oh yes life is great wow we got everything all figured out life is just wonderful And we'll just keep worshiping this way because life keeps being okay. So we're just going to keep going. Then all of a sudden life is not okay anymore. And Israel's God, the one true God, actually shows up and he's not going to help them. So what do we learn about worship here? We learn about exclusivity. The God of Israel is an exclusive God. He is not an inclusive God. You may not put anybody else in God's category and worship God the way he expects to be worshiped. There is no smorgasbord. There is no both and. With our God, it's an either or. Either you are worshiping him exclusively or you are not. And Israel worshiped with syncretism. They made a golden calf and said, well, this is kind of like our God. I don't know where they got that, but they did. And then they realized, well, Baal is like a calf. So you know what? Let's do double duty. And soon, in the eyes of the common people, Baal and Yahweh were the same thing. And Baal doesn't care because Baal doesn't really exist. Yahweh does. God doesn't like these calves. God's had enough of these calves. God's had enough of this idolatrous worship. God is a God of exclusivity. Jesus said, I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through him. Not a God of inclusivity in terms of function, in terms of salvation. Only one way to be saved. There is no other God before me, Yahweh said. There's none other, just Him. God is an exclusive God. So your worship needs to have exclusivity. If it doesn't have, if you're not exclusive in your worship, you're wrong. How do I know that? Because they were wrong. They were not exclusive. You're worshiping God in spirit and in truth, John chapter 4 worshipping God in truth is jesus said i am the truth it's like in truth means that there are no other gods that's it and if you're if you're worshipping some other god you're not worshipping yahweh and if you're doing that you're not exclusive it's a foothold for idolatry and indeed thank you meg truth there it is again truth mere words and empty oaths yeah worship needs to be truthful not just this 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 false heart not these convictions about you say oh i'll just kind of give god little words here and there but inside i'm all about me you've been there i know you have i know that because i've been there and that's the great temptation to always be there That's why Jesus says you got to deny yourself to be his disciple. That's the first thing, because the self is always there. This is self-deception. Well, God, maybe I don't have to be exclusive to you. Maybe I can date other people. God, you know, I mean, I'm just saying, because these other deities claim to care for these things, and I really want to really care about that. It's really tempting to worship the God of our retirement plans, it's really tempting to worship God of our comforts, maybe the God of our, I don't know, grocery bills, or God, God of our stomachs, or God of our cars. As he, it's just one interpretive step away to look at the things of this life and go, you know what? Life would be just fine if I had a working vehicle. Life would be just fine if I had an additional comma in my bank account. Life would be just fine if I had this instead of that. It's very tempting to take one more step and say, I'm not satisfied with life unless I have this, 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 and this, and this. That's the great temptation. Except in Israel's case, they're at least being men and women about it. They're saying, yep, yeah, we're going to worship another God because we care about the crops. And this God claims to be the God of the crops. Yeah, we know we've got Yahweh, but this is the, this is the crop God. And we want crops. So we're just going to say it. We're just going to worship this God too. Yeah, 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 I know the prophets aren't letting us do it. I know, I know, but we're still going to do it. At least they were going to be overt about it. We're not even that courageous. We want to be subversive about it. And oh, yeah, we're kicking each other's butt right now, aren't we? Because at least they came out with it, and we're overt. We're subversive about it. We, we claim to worship God with all of our heart, but inside we care about our appearance, and we care about our finances, and we care about whatever it is, whatever it is that you're hanging Deep down inside your heart, how much of that heart actually goes to God? I mean, really think about it. We're not too far away from this. Well, we claim we are. But empty oaths. We have to be careful. We have to be very careful. I do you a disservice if I don't bring this kind of stuff up while we're studying this chapter. Great line, Mick. It's like, yeah, sure, we trust God, but on the off chance, we're going to hedge our bets with bail. Just saying, maybe your God is a relationship. Maybe your God is pleasure or sex or comfort. Maybe your God is, um, you know what your gods are. You know what the Holy Spirit tells you before communion time on a given Sunday when when the, the, the worship leader says, we're going to pause and examine our hearts. You know the three or four things that immediately jump to your mind. That's a prayer the Holy Spirit always answers. In fact, you could argue that's the one prayer you could legally, biblically pray to the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit doesn't usually work that way. We pray to the Father in Jesus' name. We don't usually pray to the Holy Spirit, but that's the one time we're asking him to examine our hearts. Yeah. It's rough stuff. Appetites and security. Great, great line there. Motives. What are your motives to your worship? Is it to be seen? Is it to be heard? I don't know. Is it both? Is it so you now can give the rest of your week to doing whatever you want because you put in your Sunday time? I used to live with families, they were like that. They went to church on a Sunday morning and they got to watch football all afternoon. They said, well, God, I gave you your Sunday morning. Sunday afternoon is mine, thank you. What motives? You call God king, but is he king? Are you really submitting to him as king? Israel wasn't, but at least they called it. At least they said they weren't. Do you? But I'm sincere, God. You can be sincerely wrong. Go back to nine eleven. The men who hijacked those planes—they were every bit sincere. Sincerity is not enough. Make Texas worship a pleasure, a joy, or is it something to check off on a box? It's a great question. When we were online with our worship, especially in quarantine, worship kind of took that flavor. All right, well, I'll pause this one video I'm watching so I can now watch my church video. Because if I don't, I'm going to feel guilty. It's a bit different when we're we're in person. So what do we learn about worship and self-deception here? If you're not worshiping that way, you are deceiving yourself. Israel was deceiving itself and they faced that reality at the end that everything they were worshiping including themselves was going to be no more especially their gods but including themselves they were going to be no more and they were going to be with no answer done crispy critters done let me scroll down here the next section 9 to 15 war start with 9 to 10 from the days of Gebeah you have sinned, O Israel. There they have continued. Shall not the war against the unjust overtake them in Gebeah? When I please, I will discipline them, and nations will be gathered against them when they are bound up for their double iniquity. Gebeah? Well, that's, that's Saul's hometown, King Saul. Remember Judges 19? There was that Levite guy and his concubine. And the men of the city wanted to have Adam. And he tossed the concubine outside, and she got tore up, left for dead, essentially dead, we think. And he ends up killing her or cutting her in pieces and mailing her around and saying, rah, rah, we got to go to war against Gebeah of Benjamin. Remember that? Pretty gruesome chapters. That's the beginning here in this verse. From the days of Gibeah, that's what Gebeah was known for, that nonsense. That was obviously sin, but they've continued it since. So evidently, many, many generations later, we don't know if, if, if that what they had going on, because it kind of got resolved to a degree by the next chapter in, 20, in chapter 21 of Judges. They kind of figured out Benjamin eventually you know, is defeated, and they have to find wives for the Benjamites and life can go on. But the, the book ends with, you know, everyone, there is no king everyone does what's right in their own eyes. And that doesn't ever stop. Is that when you don't acknowledge God as your king, you continue to do what's right in your own eyes. That's the problem here. The people aren't really acknowledging God as king. They're, they're acknowledging themselves as king or their understanding as king. And so that just continues. And that's all sin. That's all pride. That's, that's the way life is. Yeah, back even last chapter, Gabe was there again. And yes, doing what's right in our own eyes. Someone texted that's like the 21st century. Yeah, that's us. This is an ancient book of the Bible, this Hosea, but it speaks to us. It not only speaks to us, it kicks our butt. It steps on our toes because we are Gomer. That was the early part. We are this Israel. We do the exact same things, except. Israel at least was overt about it. We want to think we don't. We want to hide and we just want to, you know, this, this the kind of, this, this post-truth world. You're right. You're right. gibeah A double iniquity. Now, some commentators think they had two cats. And they definitely had two places of worship. At least two. Two pagan centers, they would have had multiple, multiple calves. So, some commentators like to think there was two calves there. Others think there's a double sin. The first one being like a continuation of what happened at that original Gabbana and is continuing on to this day. Maybe it's just a rhetorical point. It's going to come at you double. Either way, it doesn't look good. War is coming. This is a war they're not going to win. They're going to be crispy critters. Number two, a heifer, 11 to 13A. Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh. Now right away, that's easy work. Okay. The calves would either pull a plow, and then when they're done, they would thresh the grain on the threshing room floor. Okay, they could stomp on the grain and, and separate the husk from the kernel, etc. So evidently... A trained calf, this is like the farmer's favorite animal. And look at this and look at this, it was beautiful. She had this probably, you know, nice and, you know, fat and nothing like a fattened calf, you see. And so this is, yeah, a trained heifer. Wow, a trained calf, I love to thresh. And so I spared her fair neck. So she's not being put on the, the yoke. Okay, she's not having the yoke over her neck. She just gets to just, just trample around the grain, wow but I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Enough already. See, God had this special, special love for Ephraim. But enough. She can be put to the yoke. In fact, you could argue here that the text has a sense of being ridden. Like she's going to go plow for somebody. And it's not going to be a fun experience because she's going to be ridden away this ephraim this beautiful trained animal is going to be taken away and put to burden this metaphor is there but the assyrians are going to come through and wipe him out and take him away she's going to be put in the plow so what's left you got judah judah has to plow jacob whoever's left after that there's going to be some that are still going to be around and they're later going to intermarry and become the Samaritans. If I understand that correctly. They're going to Harrow. What's a Harrow? A Harrow is just breaking up the clods, not even a full plow to plant. You're just breaking up clods. I can imagine with a shovel or something just breaking things up real, you know, menial work there. Um, seek so for yourselves, righteousness, reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground, for it is the time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. You have plowed iniquity, so therefore you have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies. Wow. Verse 12 is a beautiful verse. It's one that I'd like to make part of our lives. Sow for yourselves righteousness, and then reap steadfast love. Live rightly, and all of a sudden you're going to reap, your your harvest is going to be love. Break up your fallow ground, for it's the time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. Remember, Baal was the rain god. Baal was the lightning god. That's why he was the crops god, because the rain watered the crops. And it's Yahweh who is saying he's going to rain upon you, righteousness upon you. What a beautiful verse. That's why 13a stings, but you have plowed iniquity. So therefore you plant sin in the ground. Don't be surprised when injustice comes out of the ground to play with the metaphor. And then you're eating the fruit of lies. You planted lies. Remember that? I'm worshiping you God, but really I'm not. Lies, empty words, false hearts. You're planting lies and what's coming out of the ground? The fruit of those lies. Dang, God, that's a metaphor right there. That's our life, too. we got to be careful. Hypocrisy will show. By their fruit, you will know them. Yeah, verse 12 is God's desire, Mick. You're right. Verse 13 is the reality of our choices. So you have Gebeah, we've got the heifer. What's trust? Number three, 13b to 14, you have plowed or 13b. Because you have trusted in your own way, and in the multitude of your warriors, I remember they made all those alliances and they had the the, the, the kind of what came out of the you know, Judges 19 and 20 that would eventually turn into the syro Ephraimite War, where you've got Ephraim allying with Syria to go attack brother Judah. And then Judah's going, what am I going to do? Do I call upon Egypt? Do I call upon the Assyrians? What do I do here? And so, yeah, that kind of idea is going to come. So like the first sin would be like what happened in in, in Judges 19 and 20. And the second sin following with that same idea is this where they, when they went to war against Judah. So here we are. Trust. They trusted their alliances. They trusted their geopolitical factions. They trusted their warriors. Hmm. Because you have trusted in your own way. By the way, if that's you, don't you dare pray John 14, 6. Because you're not turning to Jesus as the way if you are a way. Remember exclusivity? We can't do that. or We're hypocrites. I'm going to trust in Jesus. Okay, that means I'm not going to trust in me. If I'm going to love the Lord your God with all your heart, I'm not going to follow my heart. That is self deception. If I do that, I'm deceiving myself. If I'm loving the Lord with all my heart, yet loving Yahweh, the Lord, with all my heart, there is no heart left for me to follow. It's all His. You see that? That's the key thing here. Because you have trusted in your own way, ouch, and in the multitude of your warriors. Therefore, the tumult of war shall arise among your people, and all your fortresses shall be destroyed, as Shalman destroyed Bet Arbel on the day of battle. We don't know about that battle. This is another one of those things. Is it about, you know, the great, um, the great warrior Shalmaneser? Is it that guy? Is it this Moabite guy, like, they, it's like a Shalmanu or something? The commentators give all these ideas, but what, we don't really know who this guy is, but they knew who that guy was. And obviously it was like a mic drop moment. As Shalman destroyed Bet Arbel on the day of battle, mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. Terrible. What a terrible image. That's war. And that war is coming Israel because you trust it in your own way. This preaches to us too. We gotta to pay attention. That part of us can't be there. We're not submitting to God. We're really just partially submitting to God, but leaving a little bit for us to submit to. We gotta be careful. That's a false heart. Those are empty oaths. That is like trembling for the calf. Except you're the calf. Or some other thing is the calf, some other idol. We gotta be careful. It can't be us. Verse 15, evil. Thus, it shall be done to you, O Bethel. See, God brought the real name that time. of said, a Bethel, a city, a sanctuary, because of your great evil. At dawn, the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. When you hear cut off in the Old Testament, that's crispy critters. Deaf. Death. This isn't a, 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 a very teddy bear huggy kind of chapter. There aren't many in Hosea that are. You see the blue thing here. If you do the opposite of what God wants, you're going to get the opposite of what you want. God expects this of you. So I'm going to do otherwise. I'm going to not, not really care about God. So don't be surprised if, you, if life doesn't work out in an ultimate sense. If you do the opposite of what God expects of you, don't be surprised if you get your opposite of what you really want. It's like, I'm not really going to trust God, but why do I have all this anxiety? I'm not really going to trust God, but why am I so depressed? I'm not really going to give God my exclusive worship. So why am I worried about this, 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 and this? Well, guess what? that comes to the territory. I'm not saying all the things we go through have spiritual connections to them, but there's plenty that do. If you do the opposite of what God wants, you're gonna get the opposite of really what you want in an ultimate sense. you really want security, so you're gonna go against the God of security? I mean, seriously? You really want peace. So you really gonna go against the Prince of Peace? I mean, really? That's really what you want to do? You really want forgiveness? I really want forgiveness. You really want? For- you want to go? You really want forgiveness? You're gonna go against the God that is the only way possible to have payment for your sins, to see have the actual forgiveness with shedding of blood, like real, for real forgiveness? You're gonna go against Him and expect to still get what you want? That is not work. That is the ultimate theological non-sequitur. It just doesn't follow. When you do the opposite of what God wants, you're going to get the opposite of what you want. And the irony of things is we trust and what God chooses to destroy. You see that? What do they trust? They trust their calf God. What do they trust? They trust themselves. What do they trust? They trust their foreign alliances. They trust their armies. And the things that they trust instead of God those are the things that God attacks and destroys the things that you trust are idols if they're not Yahweh the God the Lord the king of kings if they're not God everything else is an idol that you're placing your trust in God is in the business of destroying idols done the great irony of that you place trust in all those things and god destroys those things not an easy chapter let's close with this the christian and self-deception what's a way in which we as christians deceive ourselves we might say something like this well before i go there Mick had a nice text if you th- he says if you think about it this whole chapter goes back to verse one israel br- brought forth fruit for himself not god but himself he was a luxuriant vine a beautiful vine but just remember john 15 you ain't supposed to be the vine jesus said i am the vine We bring forth fruit for him, not for us. How's the Christian self-deception? Well, the first one says this. Sin, okay, I know what's there, but it can be excused. Maybe I shouldn't do that, I get it, but it's a defense mechanism. Think about that for one second. You're sinning, you know you're doing something you shouldn't do, but then you claim, well, it's just a defense mechanism. I'm going through something really hard and that's my defense mechanism I have. That's kind of like taking a popular psych- psychological thing and just tossing it right here into theology. So I know I shouldn't be using those kind of words. I realize I'm hurting people when I'm sarcastic or when I'm doing this or doing that but it's really just an defense mechanism. Is that going to work as you stand before almighty God? Or are you deceiving yourself? What about I'm coping? You know what? Life is really hard. You have no idea what I go through. You have no idea the things that I struggle with, how people treat me. You have no idea what's happened in my past. You have no idea the pressures that I face. I am coping with this. I'm able to still be here right now. And I'm able to still continue. I just have to find a way to cope. I'm gonna be blunt. I know that's my story many times. I have my own defense mechanisms or sarcasm and they hurt people. My defense mechanisms are selfish. All defense mechanisms are selfish by the way. How you cope, it is practical selfishness. How you get by to the next thing without trusting in God, you're actually coping. Coping is not trusting. Coping is just trying to smear something over so you can get to the next selfish e- episode. That's really all it is. But life is really rough. I know. And when life is at its roughest, we turn to God. We don't selfishly cope. We don't rationalize or give excuses for our sin. Maybe we have relativistic framing of things. Well, you don't know how hard my life is. If you walked a mile in my shoes, you would understand that you probably wouldn't call this sin. I realized the Bible might call it sin, but come on, it might change because I'm living and my story might allow me to get away with this because you don't understand what God has put on my plate. Okay, Naomi, is your bitterness justified? No. Great, great line, Sandy. Coping mechanisms are examples of our trusting ourselves, Not God, I think. The text, the, the text just flew up there. I didn't get the last part of it. But yeah. What a self-deception. First John 1, eight. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. John knew what was going on. We deceive ourselves. Well, I'm not claiming to be without sin. Yes, you are. If you are saying it is a defense mechanism, if you are saying it's how you cope, if you are excusing it with your story, you are claiming to be without sin because you're saying it's not really sin what I'm doing. Self-deception. How about Proverbs 4, 19? but the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They don't know what makes them stumble. You're in a dark room. You keep stubbing your toe. You keep tripping over things. You don't know what's there. That's right, you're deceiving yourself. You don't really know what you're doing to yourself. You're being deceived and you are the one doing the deceiving. What's another self-deception? Love of self. If the love of self That's a greater than sign. It's greater than the love of truth. If you love yourself more than you love the truth, you are deceiving yourself. Obadiah has but one chapter, Obadiah 3. The pride of your heart has deceived you. Ooh, Obadiah bringing it. That was a mic drop. The pride of your heart and all sin has at its core a P word, pride. Pride, the practical development of the self. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights, who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? I'm way up here. Your love of self is greater than the love of truth. I look back to a season of my life, a hypocritical season where that was me. Oh yes, I knew better. But I loved me more than I loved God. Ever heard ever heard my pastor saying that? I did. And I continued in my hypocrisy. I loved myself and the things of myself more than I loved submitting to God. That was my story. Has it ever been yours? If so, pay attention. I was self deceiving If that's you, so are you. Finally, here was self-deception. A saving faith is able to be compartmentalized or, or even reduced to a smaller thing. James one twenty-two. In fact, it's a few verses in James 1. I'm going to read them all. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And by the way, if you're claiming to be somebody of a spiritual person or that God is speaking to you or using to you, if you are somebody who actually claims that, your life better flip and change because you can't just read the word. You have to do the word. Remember HBO, hear, believe, obey. You got to do it. Don't just be listening to the word and taking it in and watching YouTube videos or reading text or whatever and never doing anything about it. That can't be you. If so, you are taking a saving faith that should be all encompassing and compartmentalizing it. You're saying, oh, well, I'll take it in my mind and I'll just have an intellectual saving faith. But the rest of me belongs to me. I can feel however I want to feel. I can live however I want to do. Do you know what that makes you? If that's you, that makes you a New Testament demon. The demons had wonderful theology, probably better than yours. They were theological stalwarts, but they didn't practice it. They were still demons. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks in this face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what they look like. You would say, What an idiot. Yeah, you would. Now, take that out to its logical conclusion. If you're doing that with God, same idiot. Let's just be real. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they'll be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and don't keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves. Boy, James, bringing it again. And their religion is worthless. Religion that our God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Boom. You deceive yourself if you try to compartmentalize the things of the faith and say, well, I'm doing a, B and C, but I'm not doing D,E and F, but I'm okay because I'm doing A, B and C. No. That's self-deception. We can't have that. Think about your life. Think about your own self-deceptions. Think about the things that you justify. Think about your heart. Think about the words that you say, the things that you tremble over. Think about Gebeah. Think about that heifer. Think about who you trust. what sin you excuse, how much you love yourself. We have to do that. We have to stay diligent. This has been Big Rev from Master Theology. Hosea chapter 10. Thanks for letting me share. This has been Master Class Theology. I pray you've been challenged and encouraged during today's episode, and I hope you'll continue to join us as we journey through the Bible. God bless.